Hello everyone and welcome to Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori, a faculty member and public health researcher at Ohio University. We are glad you could join us this week. Today we have Dr. Eunice Kimunai, who has more than 15 years of work experience as a nurse and a public health professional. Her work is varied and includes implementation research protocols, uh, developing program curriculum, leading training and educational activities, um, providing clinical and research expertise. Um, Currently, she works as a healthcare subject matter expert at the Research and Development Directorate of the Defense Health Agency Department of Defense. And in this role, she supports the advancement of collaborative, innovative medical research and development to improve military community health and save lives on and off the battlefield. Um, She has worked on various research topics such as HIV, tobacco use, cigarette smoking, refugee health, maternal and child health. And she has also engaged in global health work uh, where she spent a year in Tanzania working as a nurse educator with a global health service partnership, which was an innovative collaboration between the Peace Corps, the US President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, and the nonprofit Seed Global Health. Welcome, Dr. Kimunai. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kingori, for that wonderful introduction. So we are glad you could join us today. And we just want to get to know your journey uh, with public health and also your profession as a nurse and what you're doing currently. And we see that your expertise has been very varied. Um, it's vast, includes training in nursing and public health. Could you tell us a little bit of uh, what motivated you to pursue those two fields? Okay, that's a wonderful question. I have uh, I have traveled quite a bit in the healthcare field and public health. Uh, I began uh, my career as a nurse um, a little bit. Uh, I think the correct answer is it's seventeen years uh, that I've been a nurse uh, through nursing, which has uh, been a wonderful profession, a noble profession, and a calling for me. I have traveled to many parts of this country. I I worked quite a bit. Uh, I lived in Texas. I did travel nursing. And uh, I was uh, been to different places of this country. Uh, my patients were mainly financially impoverished and uh, and associated with unhealthy habits, uh, which yielded poor health outcomes. So I witnessed how a myriad of issues affected how health outcomes um, and uh, among my patients. So as a result of that, I decided that I'm going to pursue an area or field that. Uh, covers more than just uh, sick care. So I ended up pursuing a public health degree and so I have a master's and a PhD in public health. So I transitioned from caring to individual patients and focusing more uh, to the community, uh, which requires unique knowledge and uh, competencies and skills. So my role, like I said, extended from sick care and caring for you know one patient uh, to encompass more into advocacy, uh, community organizing, health education, political and social reform, which uh, comprises working in collaboration with agencies and community members. Awesome. And so in your role for advocacy, I see that you, you know, uh, and working with communities that are underserved and trying to improve the health of individuals, uh, you currently support the advancement of collaborative, innovative medical research and development to improve military community health. What does that mean? What does that entail? Yes. Um, 
this is going to be quite interesting because when I started this role uh, with the Defense Health Agency, and um, uh, which is part of DOD, this, the military health, I had no idea how much the military is doing in, in order to advance uh, medical research, uh, biomedical research, community research, public health research. So when I tell people what I do, most of the times I get the question of like, oh, okay, we didn't know that uh, where we know what you do is applicable in the Department of Defense. So I currently serve as a healthcare subject matter expert. Uh, when you hear that, it, it sounds broad, which it is. I cover quite a bit of portfolios. Uh, so the government funds uh, a lot of mili- military medical research and development, and it's quite a big part of national security. So over the past 20 years, there have been numerous legislation efforts to encourage and nurture coordination, communication, collaboration among government agencies uh, while reducing redundancy, which is a keyword, redundancy of research effort. We know that uh, DOD does a little bit of work. We know NIH does a little bit of work. NIH is a National Institute of Health. We know the Veterans Affairs does a little bit of work in terms of military and research. So there's, there's a need to collaborate that effort. So my work has been very vast, and um, and I'll give you guys a few uh, examples of some of the things that I'm involved in in my role at the moment. So, for example, the big part of my role uh, is to coordinate research uh, with one program that is called Congressionally Directed Medical Research Programs. This program started in 1992, and the focus for this program was uh, breast cancer, and now it's grown to multiple portfolios. And um, originated in 1992 uh, via congressional appropriation to foster novel approaches to biomedical research in response to express needs of its stakeholders, which is the American public and uh, the military and also the veterans. Currently, it supports research across over 30 distinct uh, programs, each of which are tasked to fund biomedical research in response to the unique needs of their stakeholders. The CDMRP, which is an abbreviation for the Congressional Directed Medical Research, targets critical medical research gaps, uh, supported the next generation and established uh, scientists, and then fosters collaboration, uh, promotes synergy uh, while minimizing duplication. Uh, and like other agencies, it funds high impact and uh, high risk and uh, high gain projects. So that's one of the things that I'm involved in. Uh, also in the military, there's also another program in the medical research is called Joint Program Committees. Uh, these charters uh, to coordinate, align, and support the development and uh, discovery of material knowledge training solutions associated with the medical capability gaps identified in joint requirement documents. So some of the portfolios that we cover uh, is medical simulation and uh, military infectious diseases, operational medicine, radiation health effects, and clinical and, and, um, and rehabilitation uh, medicine. And then uh, we have another program we call the National Research Action Plan. This was uh, signed by President Obama in 2012 to facilitate co- collaboration among uh, DOD and the VA and the NIH on research on PTSD, suicide prevention, and traumatic brain injury, which is a big problem and an issue in the military. And then, uh, so we also do the same thing, collaborate uh, research efforts among all those agencies to discover the causes and the mechanisms underlying PTSD and TBI and other co-occurring outcomes such as, you know, suicide, depression, and, and substance abuse. I'm also in another project. Uh, it's called the Study to Assess Risk and Resilience in uh, Service Members, uh, Longitudinal Study. So this study takes place over a, a quite a period of time. We also do to collect data and maintain 
and manage data collected from soldiers during their army career as they transition to civilian life. So we have principal investigators all over the country. We have a PI uh, in Harvard. We have we collaborated with the uh, University of Michigan, University of, of, of San Diego. So we have principal investigators in different places. And then the other biggest part of my work is uh, deployment health, and uh, which is kind of self-explanatory. So when the service members are deployed in all over the world, you know, they come across a couple of things that at first they, it might not look like um, a health hazard, but later we realize that, you know, like things that are just airborne and agents that are exposed to that later can come up and it needs to be looked at. So we also do studies on that as well. And the biggest part of my job, we plan symposiums. So we actually, this summer was a summer of symposiums and, and conferences which we've all ended up postponing. So we have a big uh, military health research symposium, which was supposed to August, uh, to happen in August. And we had planned that. And uh, every topic that uh, I, I kind of mentioned before, and, and we have military research and also civilian counterparts to come and present their, uh, their knowledge resulting from military research and development. And uh, also we have a symposium for deployment health we are planning towards the end of the summer, around uh, September. So hopefully things will have picked up by then in terms of reopening as a, re as a result of the COVID-19. So that's a little bit of what I do. Uh, in summary, because I mentioned quite a lot of things, um, we do interagency research collaboration. So all the research that is ongoing in the DOD and other government organizations, we work to kind of collaborate that and put that together and uh, bring all the people that are involved into the table uh, so that you know, to make it robust research and also to kind of cut down on, on duplication of efforts. Wow, this is definitely news for me. Um, I really had very little knowledge of military health. So it's exciting to see and to learn more about the work that you're doing and also uh, what uh, the government is trying to do to help improve the outcomes of um, our military community. So I see that there is also a defense department program integrated into primary care clinics to help active duty and retired service members. Could you expand a little bit on that? Yes, absolutely. Um, this was a little bit on my previous role. It's with the same division, uh, the JNAN, which is the Research and Development Division. Uh, so we worked on this uh, wonderful program. It's still ongoing. It's called the Primary Care Behavioral Health. Uh, this program integrates behavioral health services into primary care to improve health outcomes. Uh, the aim was to enhance uh, usual primary care treatments by incorporating focused evaluation, uh, brief interventions, and care management within the primary care clinic. So we know that service members, retired service uh, members, uh, that's the veterans and their families, go to the primary care. Like all of us, we go to the primary care physician. We, we go there annually whenever we need to see a primary care physician. So because primary care clinics provide general services, patients often find it less traumatizing and easier to access these services. So it, was, it made sense to incorporate behavioral health to go to where the patients are already going. If they're already going to the primary care, why don't we provide this uh, behavioral health aspect of it in that particular setting? Because we already know that the service members and their families are really going to see the primary care physician. So in that setting, we're going to provide this behavioral health. So integrating behavioral health providers into primary care teams help reduce patient uh, readmission rates, improved overall satisfaction with care, 
and improve collaboration uh, between providers. Wow. It's exciting to see, again, that some of this work is also being brought closer to the communities um, through primary care clinics. So a little bit of your global health work um, and the time you were in Tanzania working as a nurse educator um, with the Global Health Services Partnership. Could you describe your experience working with the communities there? Absolutely. So just a little bit of a, of a background. Uh, I spent a year in Tanzania, that was 2014 and 2015. Uh, I was working as a nurse educator uh, with that particular partnership, uh, the Global Health Partnership uh, uh, that uh, Caroline mentioned in the introduction. In this role, I served to strengthen health education and, and service delivery by working with partner country, which was Tanzania, to meet their long-term healthcare human resource uh, needs. So working with the community there, um, I will start off by saying it was wonderful. Uh, when I was going to Tanzania, I actually uh, have a blog post uh, in the Peace Corps website about my experience there and the excitement you know, that I was feeling going there and being also that I'm from East Africa, speak the language, understand the culture, and uh, totally felt like, to me, it was way more than that. It was also giving back to the community of, uh, and the people that I come from. So it was very exciting. And of course, my colleagues joked about, you know, me being from East Africa and going to East Africa as a Peace Corps, which is an American agency, that it would be a little bit interesting. Yes, it was interesting in all aspects. Uh, other than that, recently before I left, I had just finished my PhD and I had written my dissertation on HIV and AIDS in Kenya. And uh, when I got to Tanzania, it was a lot of the things that I had written on my dissertation were all coming to life, which I'll talk about that uh, a little bit shortly. But um, I had a privilege of learning firsthand about healthcare in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, part of why we went to, to Tanzania uh, was because of the phenomenon called brain drain. And um, this is a problem faced with many African countries, faced by a lot of um, resource-poor uh, countries. Uh, a lot of people immigrating and, and going to other parts where they, and it's a, it's a lot of factors, and I'll mention that in a little bit. So in Tanzania, uh, there are about a thousand doctors who graduate every year from Tanzanian universities. So many of these graduates leave for greener pastures, and actually they don't even come to the West. They mostly go to Southern African countries like Namibia, Botswana, Swaziland, and Lesotho, uh, and as of course, and a few of them uh, make it to the Western countries. So the brain drain also happens internally where, you know, medical professions opt out to not work in a, in a setting where they are providing direct patient care, but they prefer to work in settings, you know, sometimes it could be NGOs and places like that. So only about 40% of Tanzanian doctors who graduate actually practice medicine, 60% leave pr the profession. And I think those statistics mirrors a lot of those other countries, you know, um, in Malawi. I think Malawi, the problem is even more severe. But it's in it, that problem is it, this, the statistics I'm giving is it kind of varies a little bit between the countries, but it's pretty much almost the same. So my, by being there, I was hoping to inspire my students to be the agents of change. Um, we talked about with my students, I, I was actually teaching there. So my students also knew about the problem. And uh, I was glad and I'm happy to report that a lot of them say that, you know, they were going to stick around and, and, and hopefully uh, to be uh, that agent of change. Uh, you know, talk about the brain drain phenomenon. I'm actually reading a book right now and, uh, and I'm not endorsing or anything. It's called Stuck Here. It's a story of immigrants. And uh, it's um, 
the title, sort of the title is Kostake, and it has all these stories about, you know, African immigrants who've come to the U.S. mostly. It, that phenomenon of, of brain drain is, is, is very much mentioned in that book. So I would totally recommend that book. Wow. Um, I definitely concur with you uh, with regard to brain drains. And so there's still so much more that we can learn um, as um, researchers who are in the diaspora. We'll be back after this message. I know while you were in Tanzania, you, you know, witnessed men getting involved in uh, prevention of mother to child transmission for HIV at the local health center where you worked. Um, and this is definitely um, an initiative that has been ongoing in our resource limited countries as well, and particularly in Africa. So how was that experience of getting men involved in uh, PMT? Absolutely. Like I mentioned earlier, my dissertation was about HIV work in Kenya. And this was a good part of my writing and my literature review about men getting involved in this, you know, in the HIV and prenatal care and, and things like that. So when I got there, I was able to witness uh, firsthand. And the incident that happened, I was in a clinic and I was just observing, not doing much. And uh, the, the one pregnant lady came and she came with a spouse and they let her walk past everyone. Uh, to the examination room, and I asked, you know, why did she, why did you guys do that? They say we're incentive, you know, we're doing it's an incentive to let all the other women come with their partners because, you know, most of the times the partners are the ones that are making the decision, so we want them to be here and and be involved and things like that. And also critically, also when they do that HIV test, they want to be able to do it on both of them. Um, so that was how I ended up. Um, uh, really focusing on this. So get, men getting involved in the process during pregnancy of their partners who are HIV positive is critical to prevent transmission of the disease to their babies. So despite studies that are showing that uh, most men encourage their partners to access these services, uh, not many actually participate in the prenatal HIV counseling or get tested. So which is as a result mostly of the cultural norms. So when I was in Tanzania, of course, I worked with my students to address this problem. And uh, uh, it was an, I had been encouraged to see how the health centers where I worked had implemented some of these strategies. Like I mentioned, the one that uh, the mother comes in, they just let them walk all the way to the back uh, without uh, waiting in line. And different other strategies that they used to, to do that. So it was very, it was very, very, very encouraging. I really liked seeing that. Great. Now, back to the work you are doing here in the U.S., in addition to the support you're giving to the Department of Defense, you were recently tasked with developing a protocol to reopen um, a place of worship, which is a church, post the COVID-19. So when you look at the current coronavirus um, atmosphere, if you will, or any other recent pandemics, how has it affected or impacted the religious community? Yes, absolutely. So I had a privilege in working on a, on a reopening protocol, uh, which was very good because I did what I do best, which is look up stuff at uh, the research and put it together in, in order for us to have a plan at the place of, of my worship. So the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted religious uh, places in, in, in multiple ways. As we all know, if, if you're a person that uh, attends uh, worship and services, uh, there was closures, um, there was cancellation of, of pilgrimages, 
surrounding observations and festivals. Uh, so many churches, synagogues, and mosques and temples had offered worship through live stream amidst the, the pandemic. So the most drastic result has been the exceedingly quiet shift of religious services from in-person to online uh, worship. Uh, while for most, um, churches have used various means of methods to reach their audience, such as the radio, the television, online media halting, and in-person worship is one of the most significant sudden disruption in the practice of religion in the whole world. Uh, so people have reported the change in their religious habits due to the pandemic. They talk about, you know, attending services, you know, you know in person less often. And uh, they watch their religious uh, services online or on the TV instead. And then, of course, we saw a lot of churches also offering drive-through or driving church service, which had achieved greater level of attendance during the COVID-19. So there was a little bit of statistics that shows that 19% of Americans said that their faith had been strengthened through this moment, and about 3% said that it got worse as a result of the pandemic. So, you know, it totally makes sense because these things, you know, kind of, you know, disrupt people and a lot of people get to, you know, ask a lot of questions and, you know, try to find answers in the religion because of things that, you know, that are uncertain. Most cities and, and counties and and states have this reopening uh, phases or stages. So for the longest time, and some places still are still on stage one of reopening, but uh, a lot of places, including where I am, you know, the D.C., Maryland area, uh, they have, uh, they're on phase two of reopening. And actually it went pretty fast. It was phase one for a little bit, and then suddenly it was phase two. So the churches... Or, uh, on phase one, there was a recommendation for them to continue online services. But then phase two, the churches can meet with 50 or less people using safeguards and physical distancing. So we literally went to the nitty gritty of specifics about how would that look like. So, for example, we said on the gathering, you know, a maximum of 50 people in a facility. Uh, this is uh, this this is kind of important to know because uh, uh, um, also under the 50 percent capacity of the facility that I attend, uh, which is also the requirement of retail as well. So some of the general considerations uh, we said, which is following the guidelines, that all attendees over the age of two will be will continue will be asked to wear a mask. We post signs all over the facility of different you know messaging about COVID nineteen and what uh, participants need to do. Uh, the message is you know ask that if you're sick and those with symptoms to continue staying at home. Uh, we went to specifics almost to say that, you know, if you to disable water fountains because, you know, we don't want people to lean in uh, while trying to get water and then leave, you know, droplets everywhere. Uh, we went to the specifics almost even on what to do in terms of offering. You know, we, you know, the CDC suggests using offering box, but also continue offering online, um, which is now available and it's kind of used quite a bit at the moment in, in a lot of churches. Uh, we also have, uh, we also said, you know, provide latex gloves and mask and hand sanitizer uh, for those counting the offerings. Uh, we went to specifics also with bathrooms and say, we would if you have single occupancy bathroom, that's wonderful, that's what we want. But if you have toilets that, uh, that have multiple uh, occupancy, uh, we recommend like using every other toilet system. And then promoting some of these, the, the four, four steps of using the bathrooms, for example, using the paper towel to open and close doors, uh, thoroughly wash your hands afterwards, and then spray all the surfaces after use, after use with diluted, um, highly diluted bleach water, 
uh, leaving doors open and lights on so that people are not trying to turn open the doors and turn it, you know, turn the lights on. So you minimize touching. We went to specifics also in terms of hospitality. If you have coffee, uh, coffee will not be served in phase one and phase two. Only prepackaged things such as granola bar will be available. And then for worship, uh, we went to specific details of uh, to limit the worship team to two voices separated by two feet from the audience and six feet from other team members and encourage attendees to sing lightly because research shows that singing is nearly as detrimental as coughing in spreading the, the virus and then limiting the, the, the service to about one hour. And also we say that we're going to experiment to uh, other forms of non-musical uh, worship as well. We talked about specifics such as, you know, air conditioning and ventilation, what to do with that. And uh, we talked about, you know, what cleaning supplies we need uh, and what things we need to, uh, to have in place, especially if we have a sick person who has attended. Uh, we say, you know, wait 24 hours before entering the, sp- the facility again if an infected person visits the facility. And then the facility will be, need to be disinfected um, completely. We went to specifics also about children and youth ministry, which I will not get into it because they were very rigorous. And then uh, in case of emergencies, what we need to do. The, the main thing about the emergencies is also, you know, tracking who is coming in each Sunday for, for service and actually asking the attendees to update their, their emergency phone numbers or their, their, in order for the, if you have a sick person coming to the facility, you have a way of contacting everyone who had come in and letting them know that there's possibly have been exposure and, you know, what they need to do in terms of quarantine and all things like that. So it was it was a very specific protocol that we put in place uh, to help us when we, we reopen. And of course, we say that, yes, we are reopening. These are the protocols, but also we send out a survey to all the members and say, what kind of, are you comfortable? You know, I think every organization is sending out a survey to ask, you know, it's one thing to reopen, but is it is another thing for people to feel comfortable coming back and, and things like that? Wow, that is an extensive protocol. And I can only imagine how things will turn out uh, during implementation. Do you know the first day when you will have that um, sort of face-to-face? We do not abortion? have this, uh, a date yet. So you're still Abs- reviewing absolutely. the protocol. All right. I do wish you definitely the best with that. Um, and so just as we come to a close uh, with all the work that you've done, which has been really impressive, what is maybe one or two of your memorable? Uh, in Tanzania, was definitely a highlight uh, of my career. But there's another part of, uh, of my work with HIV patients that I haven't mentioned yet. I worked uh, with the Ryan White program quite uh, uh, extensively. I still actually do work with the Ryan White program uh, on an individual based doing uh, trainings to uh, caseworkers and, and, and uh, other medical professions on, uh, on treatment adherence. So the, I'm very passionate about HIV and I consider doing that work one way or another. So my work with HIV patients here in the U.S. Uh, through the Ryan White program and internationally you know, has allowed me to witness firsthand all those issues that I, I, I said earlier, you know, the myriad of, of issues, uh, health issues, health-related behavior, culture and religion the religious influences and access and utilization of healthcare affects health outcomes. So I would say this work has really taught me quite a bit. Uh, so I say this all the time, you know, whenever I go to an interview and then they ask me for the longest time when they ask me, tell us a time when 
you know, an example of a time that you did this. And my, my, all my examples, I ended up pulling from all my work with the Ryan White program. So it's, it's been the most uh, beneficial and, and, and when, where I have learned the most. So like I said earlier, I've been in the, the forefront of educating people on their HIV prevalence and um, through the demographic and epidemiological data. Um, the use of data is, is a big part of everybody's job. So I have worked uh, to deconstruct and, uh, and get rid of stigma among, associated with HIV, AIDS in the marginalized communities. Um, I look to create uh, a dialogue uh, among, about HIV and AIDS among populations that are underserved and face various socioeconomic disparities uh, as a burden of HIV disease is disproportionately affecting minorities. So with my knowledge of the, the Ryan White program, uh, I'm able to analyze and prioritize and access uh, assess the needs of eligible and metropolitan areas and transitional grant areas uh, when it comes to allocating funds for necessary medical and uh, and support services. So, like I said, my work in, with Ryan White has been the most uh, significant. And like I said, for the longest time, when I go to an interview, I pull a lot of examples from that work. Awesome. So finally, what advice would you give to any of these public health students who recently graduated? Biggest thing that I would say, you know, understand the system and work it. Um, I would say network, network and network. And don't be afraid to take chances. You know, everybody has a path of their own. Uh, some people, you know, they've taken one line of work and they've, you know, and, and an area they become completely uh, experts, which is what we want in public health, and they've stuck with that lane. And some people like myself have done different things, which at first may look like it's not a strength, but it ends up being a big strength. Uh, like I said, with my work, uh, especially the work that I do right now in the military, it sounds like it's far from HIV, but I've used every single thing that I've done. Like I said, you know, the portfolios that we do, uh, we, you know, we talk about infectious diseases, which HIV come from. Uh, I have a, I have occupational health background, which comes in handy because sometimes you might end up in roles where your knowledge is stretched very far and wide, which is fine. Uh, so don't be afraid to kind of have your own path and understand the system and work it. It's, it's, I don't know who's, you know, the, the population and the audience in, in here. Um, I, I'm going to be real and I say that uh, public health, some, it's a very fulfilling career. You feel like you're helping people all the time, which you are, which is a very fulfilling career. But at the same time, um, uh, sometimes uh, public health uh, doesn't pay very well. So I tell people and I tell young people all the time, you want to have a fulfilling career, but at the same time, you want to you know, have a decent living wage and when you are, you know, getting to my age, you're able to to provide for yourself, provide for for if you have, de- you know, dependents. So what I'm trying to say is that it's it's um, really chatter, you know, your own path and 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 understand the system and work it. And uh, there's gonna be a lot of imagining. Like right now, I say that um, you know, who knows what kind of opportunities for work that COVID nineteen will bring. When we have a vaccine, it's going to be 9 billion people that will need to be vaccinated. So we have a lot of work to do because all of us will probably be working with COVID-19 one way or another for a little while um, in the years to come. 
Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kimunai, for speaking with us today and, um, you know, just giving us a wealth of uh, information and knowledge on military health, but also on infectious diseases such as HIV and the global health work that uh, you're thank engaged Thank you so in. much for having me. And thank you to the listeners. And I, we look forward to having you come on with um, on the podcast again and listen to the additional guests that we have in the coming weeks.